Hey, good morning, everyone. I, I'm Ben. That's my name. Welcome to 4C. A special welcome to our guests. Pastor Will told you how to use the dark green box on the front of your Connect card to engage. But if you're our first-time guest with us, I want to encourage you to give us your name and address on the back, and we'll send you some free Chick-fil-A coupons, just our way of saying thanks for being with us today at Four Corners Church, all right? You'll use this Connect card just a little bit later in the service to fill in in the front the kind of light gray box. We're in the middle of a message series called Seven, and we're looking at the letters of Jesus in the book of Revelation to seven churches in Asia. These churches were led by the apostle John. You might remember John. He was the one that from the cross, Jesus said to him, John, take care of my mother. So you know they had kind of a special relationship. And John, after Jesus died and was resurrected and went to heaven, John was given charge over at least seven churches in the country we now call Turkey. Seven cities where there were churches. And John was the leader, the elder, the bishop. There's a lot of words you could use for him. But at this particular season, John is on an island right where the Aegean Sea meets the Mediterranean Sea, an island called Patmos. In fact, there's a map up here. You can see the black dot where John is. And he's exiled. His influence, his leadership, and the impact in the region was such that it was bringing the church work, at least perceived to be, in conflict with Roman values. And so they exiled John to this island, and those seven churches there that are named in Revelation, each one gets a letter from Jesus, they kind of form an ancient mail route as correspondence from Rome would come into Asia, landing there at Ephesus number one, travel the major roads, and make their way to the, west, the, the eastern edges of the Roman Empire. This was the area over which John had responsibility. And while he's in exile, the Lord Jesus shows up to John and transcribes for John some letters, one to each church. Now, I don't know how much you know about the book of Revelation, but numbers are kind of special in that book. And so historically, theologians have said that the number seven is an important number because it represents completion. The Lord created the earth in six days, rested on the seventh day. So seven, the work is done. And seven takes on special meaning in the Bible. So some theologians have said these seven churches are unique individual churches. But taken as a whole, they kind of represent the Lord's heart and his values to all churches. And in each letter, the letter ends with the phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And that's an invitation for the readers in John's day who got that letter from Jesus as John transcribed it and sent it. And it's an invitation for disciples today to continue to hear what God is saying through these letters about his heart, his values, what has his attention, what concerns him. And so when we read today the fourth one, the city of Thyatira, we're going to be reading the letter. It's the longest letter, and in some ways it's the most complex letter in all of the, the letters that Jesus has given this church. And so I wanted to kind of take you through what happens to me sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, and, um, and I hit a speed bump. Let me, let me tell you what that's like. So in my room, there's a chair. And we encourage you to do this in our grow experiences. We talk about getting the first 15 minutes of your day to the Lord. You do chair time. So for us, for a lot of us here, many of you are doing this too, I have a place where I sit and I do devotions with the Lord. And I start my day there. And for me, I try not to work on my message in those first several minutes. 
Um, wouldn't be wrong to do that. I'm in the Word of God. But I, I, what I'm trying to do is just work on me as a, as a disciple, as a husband, as a father, as a man, as a, as a boss. I, I just disciple of Jesus. And so I have my kind of devotional reading that I'm doing, and I sit there and I just get, get my time in. It's the discipline. It's much like exercise for your body. You do it with a certain amount of regularity, and you get the benefit. And same thing, I'm exercising my spiritual self as I do this. And so I sit there, and I can imagine if some of you have told me you've done this, you've gone ahead and read the seven letters. I can imagine if you were reading the seven letters of Jesus, maybe one at a time, 15 minutes, and then you pray about it, you get to Revelation chapter 2, which is where we're going to be, somewhere around verse 18, which is where the letter to Thyatira goes, and you're reading it. Um, So what I'd like to do is you can follow along in your message notes on the screen, in your Bible, on your phone. Here's what it would be like for me if I'm reading it like this, all right? So let's just work through it. Here's what our Bible says. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So if you've been reading the letters and here you are on the fourth one, you notice some similarities. Uh, Each one is addressed to an angel or a messenger. The word angel technically is messenger. It can be heavenly being. It can actually still and be true to the word messenger here on earth. But to the angel, to the messenger in the city of Thyatira. So there's a church in Thyatira there. And then you you notice that just like in every other letter, Jesus begins by giving a picture of himself. In every one of the letters, Jesus begins by telling you a little about, about who he is and how he wants you to see him. It's almost as if the logic here is is that if you could see Jesus clearly, if you got a real vision of him, then what he's about to tell you, you'll be more open and receptive to. If you can really see Jesus, then you can see what Jesus has to say, and you'll be more open and receptive to it, because the whole point of the letter is for Jesus to talk to you and for you to receive it. So this is very similar. So far, it's all similar. And then the picture of Jesus we get, really cool imagery here, his eyes are like a blazing fire. And his feet are like burnished bronze. Now, what you may not know that the original recipients of this letter in Thyatira knew is that in Thyatira, bronze is a special metal. Thyatira is, uh, well, it's it's a blue-collar town. It doesn't have the wealth of Ephesus. It doesn't have the uh, intellectual capital of Pergamum from last week. What it has is a lot of working trade guilds, relatively small. It's the smallest city. Um, it's not known for much, but the claim to fame is, is that the bronze from Thyatira worked through those trade guilds, those craftsmen, and some of the best in the empire, and a lot of the weaponry of Rome is passing through the smelting furnaces of, Thy- uh, of Thyatira. So when Jesus says he has eyes like blazing fire... That blazing fire would have been a common scene in Thyatira, fire that purified. So when Jesus says, I have eyes like blazing fire, when he sees things, he sees it perfectly. All the junk is burned away, and he sees with accuracy exactly what's going on. This is the picture of Jesus that Jesus wants the readers of this letter to know. I see, and I see clearly, and I see perfectly, and what I see is accurate. And then he also has 
polished or burnished bronze, and it would have the glow of almost like gold. Um, it'd be reflective and pure and bright, and the light would glint off of it. These are his feet. It's interesting because this is a symbol of power. You would see a king's feet not when you were standing next to the king talking. You would see a king's feet when you bow down in front of him, which would have been a normal way for people to greet people in power and position. So you would bow down, put your face on the ground, and look forward, and you would see these feet that are glowing. Um, symbol of power and authority and the prestige of Jesus. So that's what he wants you to know about him. I see, I see clearly. I have power and authority. And then he says really good stuff. Remember, these letters are all job descriptions to the church or job performance reviews to the churches. And they are for us a description of what's important to Jesus and what his heart is on matters of those times and geographies, but also really What's in the heart of Jesus for his church, the, uh, the bride of Christ, is what it's called. And here's what he says, I know your deeds. So we've heard that phrase before. That means, again, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in your life, in my life. He knows what's going on in this church. He knows about every conversation that's been had, every meeting, and every uh, nursery going on right now over here. Jesus is actually in the room. Jesus is here in this room right now watching and paying attention to everything that's going on. So if you're drawing on your offering envelope, you might want to stop. Jesus is watching. Uh, just made that up. I didn't say that in first service. All right. So he says, I know your deeds. And then he, here's what he says about him. And it's really good stuff. He says, uh, your love and your faith. It's like, you guys, you get this right. You have some love, you have some faith. He says, your service and your perseverance, like even when it's gotten hard. I mean, your leaders has been carted off to Patmos. Uh, it's difficult to live in a city like Thyatira. And he says, and, and look, at, I like this last one, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. What he's saying is, is like you're growing as disciples. Like you used to have to have baby food. Like you used to could only drink milk. But you're growing and you're doing more, and you're pressing in, just like every disciple is called to do. Every disciple is called to move from the milk of God's word to the meat of God's word. Every disciple is called to move from the elementary matters of the faith that Paul talks about to the more mature matters of the faith. Every person in the church has to look at things not simply through the lens of their emotion. They must look at things through the lens of scripture. That's a mark of maturity. Everybody has to grow in the fruit of the spirit. As the spirit is working in your life, there's fruit. The fruit of maturity looks like love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, joy, and self-control. These are marks of maturity. And you're doing it, Thyatira. So this is really cool. This church has got a lot of really good stuff going on. Let's talk about why that's special. Like you were doing it, but you're doing better now. Thyatira is a guild town. It's a tradesman town. It's a blue-collar town. Here's a picture of the uh, uh, modern excavations of the ancient ruins of Thyatira. Um, it's not coastal. It's small. It's actually close to Pergamum, and a lot of the same dynamics in that church and culture are happening in this one. Um, it would be like uh, in modern day... Well, imagine this. Imagine your boss would come to you one day and say, hey... We're going to move you, you're going to get transferred, and I'm going to take you not to one of the major cities of the world. You're not going to go to Singapore. Uh, you're not going to go to um, L.A. or New York. We're going to send you and your family to this nice little family town called Flint, Michigan. Yeah, exactly. 
you'd be like, uh, the water there is bad. Uh, it had a heyday. But that's not really one I go. But your boss would say, look, here's the deal. You're going to go there. There's still some industry there. And so I'm going to give you a job in this place. Thyatira was a lot like Flint, Michigan. Nobody wanted to go there. It was hard. But if you went and you got into the trades, you could do really well. Now, when I talk about getting into the trades, they had trade guilds that are similar but not exactly like labor unions today. So this is not about labor unions. I want to talk about the guilds that are similar to labor unions today. In the guilds in ancient Rome, every trade in every city would have a guild of wool smiths, um, metal workers, dye, people who would dye cloth. Um, that's going to show up in another one of the, the letters we're going to read. And in Thyatira, at the top of the food chain were those that worked in bronze and, and weaponry, really. And uh, ancient Rome was very religious. I didn't say godly. I said religious. And so every guild had its token god that was worshipped, that you would pray for favor. That worship of that god defined a lot of your social life, who your friends were, how you connected. And the expectation was is if you were a part of the guild, you'd pay your dues. And the way you paid your dues is you would go to the temple of that god and you would give your choice cuts of meat the first portion of your meat. And if the first portion of your meat was given to that God, then the understanding was the rest of it would be blessed. You would give the best of your um, produce. You would give the best you had. And when you did an offering to that God, then he would bless the rest. But like a lot of the ancient world, the lines between worship religiously and debauchery got blurred. So for the rest of the message, this is a PG-13 talk. You've got about one minute, sincerely, if you don't want your middle school age kid or down below to hear me talk about debauchery. And you can explain that word to them as you're going out to the lobby right now. So what would happen is you'd go to these guild meetings and you would begin to worship. And the way ancient uh, uh, worship looked like in the uh, Roman world was you would be in that room and you would make your sacrifice, there'd be some prayers, maybe some type of exhortation about what was going to happen. Uh, teaching was actually low on the priority in most temples. It was all experience, teaching low, experience high. That was a problem. That's a, that's a problem in some religious environments today. You've got to have both a, a mixture of solid teaching as well as experiential engagement. And so high experience, and the experiences would look like this. There was almost always a celebration the choice cuts of meat, the choice wine, the choice food was shared with the guild. And so their wine would begin to flow. That's what would happen. And people would get drunk, really drunk, like a crazy level, fraternity meets army buddies on a break, kind of drunk, right? So you get the imagery. And then when they would get drunk, um, the other things that would happen, it's... Uh, it's embodied in a country song. Maybe you know this song. Tequila makes your clothes come off. You know where we're going with this? All right. So that's what would happen. And each temple had hired prostitutes. And the expectation was, as a part of your worship, as a part of the guild engagement, as a part of the social life to be in that trade, you couldn't get in if you didn't join the guild. As a part of that, you would participate in these celebratory um, environments. 
and people would hook up with people. And uh, they'd hook up with a lot of people. And there are frescoes all around the Roman world that you can visit today showing people in these kind of bacchanalian uh, orgies. Grapes over the mouth, wine flowing, partially clothed, reclining on beds. And uh, you can see that stuff today. I mean, historically, this is a fact. This has not been the opinion. And in Thyatira specifically, it was connected to your job. And this created real tension for that young church. And when Jesus came down and said, I know the world you're living in, I see it clearly, and I know exactly what's going on. Here's what I have to say to you, Thyatira. I know of your faith and your love. I know how even in an environment like that, in a world gone wrong that is ugly, um, you guys are pressing through. And some of you, like you started off as babies, but man, you're really growing. And that's really cool that Jesus would come and affirm that kind of stuff. But then he turns his attention somewhere around verse number 20. He says this. By the way, I'm only holding a piece of paper because the text here is a whole lot bigger than the text here. And I cannot read. All right, so here we go. He says, so uh, you're doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. So here's that bold, candid declaration of Jesus of their job performance, how they're doing as disciples. Let me give a little um, uh, disclaimer here, and I'll remind you of this two or three times. Um, Jesus here is not talking to Thyatira, the city. He's not. He's talking to Thyatira, the church. These words are not for the culture. These words are for disciples. These words aren't for the participants in the guilds who claim no allegiance to Jesus. They are for people who are trying to earn a living where guild life is normal and they have a connection to Jesus. These are words to Christians. At the end of this letter, Jesus is going to say the phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When Jesus says that, he's not inviting people who do not have faith in Jesus to investigate and evaluate the words. He's not. These are not words for unbelievers. These are words for Christians. Disciples of Jesus, people who claim the lordship of Jesus. What that means then, if you're in the room today or you're listening online and you're not a follower of Jesus, you get to hear us have a conversation to Christians. These words do not apply to you. You are welcome to ignore them. I hope you don't, but you're welcome to. Jesus is not talking to you. If you're a Christian, you are not welcomed to ignore the words of Jesus. You can filter out then. You can be angry at me, but these are the words of Jesus to his church. And if you claim Jesus, you got two things when you got a savior. You got a savior and you got the savior's bride called the church. You got them both. I know it's popular to distinguish them and make them different. It's just not biblical. Can't love Jesus and hate his bride any more than you can say, Ben, you're awesome, but your wife stinks. You can't do that. Like you can, but you ain't going to be in our lives, right? That's just the way that's going to work. You can't. You get Jesus and the church. This is for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, then, yeah, enjoy. But if you are a Christian, listen up. I have this against you. Here's what he says. Now, remember the early church here? 
Most of them were Jewish. Most of the early churches began out of a synagogue where everybody had a common homogenous background and religious heritage. They had shared stories. And there's going to be a reference to a story from the Old Testament here that maybe you don't know the story. I'm going to tell it to you. And this is why we're PG-13. It's going to get worse from here. Here we go. I have this against you. You tolerate, you may want to underline that word, that woman Jezebel. That's a showstopper. So what I do now when I'm sitting in my room in my chair, my first 15 minutes, uh, most of my books are in my office over here, and I've given a lot away. So most of my good study materials over here, I have a few books at home I keep. And like I have a collection of old books I got at home, and I love pulling out those old commentaries of the Bible. But most of it's here. So now if I come across a speed bump in the Bible, I do what a lot of you do. You know what I do? I just grab my phone. Siri, what is Jezebel? And if you do that in the first five responses, here's what you get. Yeah, that really is. That's this month's cover for the magazine Jezebel. Um, Jezebel is all about a, a, a liberal and indulged lifestyle, how to live the, the, your best life, how to, how to have uh, all the stuff and uh, how to dress right, have the right experiences, eat at the right restaurants. You, you get the idea. This is Jezebel. It's the indulgent life. I'm not suggesting that Anna Kendrick is Jezebel in any way. That's just what comes up. There's also a website. Don't go here. If you do, there'll be alarms somewhere in this building. If you're on our network, they will go off. Um, there's a website called Jezebel. And uh, it is, in the, to some degree, in the honor of this woman. It's all about uh, sexually liberal life and making sure that you get all the sexual urges that you want met, met and they, they'll teach you how to do that. Um, so I'm doing research for this sermon, and I get off that website. That's what I'm doing. Um, so just, you know, take me, take my advice. Be careful what you Google. You're never more than three clicks away from where you shouldn't be, all right? So you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, look, look what Jesus says he's going to do to this Jezebel person. Now, evidently in the church at Thyatira, there's a woman whose name probably wasn't Jezebel. Probably wasn't. Um, you're welcome to name your kid Jezebel. It's fine. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. But it does carry with it a certain stigma. It'd be like naming your kid Benedict Arnold. You know, you just wouldn't really do it um, because that name represents more than the name, right? To Jewish readers of the first century, we're uh, a generation and a half into the church now. Um, the name Jezebel brought to mind the wickedest and darkest time in Israel's history. And this woman is at the center of all of it. Um, Let's talk about her before I talk about what Jesus says he's going to do with her. So she is married to the king Ahab in Israel's history. She's married to the king Ahab, and um, Ahab has all the promise of being a great king. And he does what kings of that day did. He called the neighboring communities, those kings, however it is they called, you know, sent a servant, whatever, Snapchat, I don't know how they did it. They called each other. And... Um, decided that he would go into a trade agreement with the king of Phoenicia. Phoenicia's on the coast. There's a robust trade, even in the Old Testament, shipping. 
And so by going into an allegiance with Phoenicia, Israel gets the goods and services from around their known world more quickly and without much tariff. And here, here's how you seal the deal back in the day. The king would marry his daughter off to be a part of the other king's harem. So Jezebel is the king of Phoenicia's daughter. She's not an Israelite. And Ahab, trying to expand his kingdom, lower the tariffs, bring in the good life for the people, marries Jezebel. But like Solomon, a few years earlier, the Bible makes it very clear that the heart of this woman turns the heart of that king. And it ushers in a dark age. It's really ugly. Jezebel's Phoenician area worshipped a god that we call him Baal. Of the Bible, B-A-A-L, it's technically pronounced Baal, just so if you want to like talk to a Bible scholar, it's Baal, but Baal's fine. They worship Baal, and Baal's worship, he was the god of thunder, rain, he, had, he was the fertility power god, he could fertilize the earth with his rain, and um, so in the worship of Baal, there was a lot of fertilizing activity, you tracking? That's what happened. The wine would flow, the fruit of the earth. Other stuff would flow, the fruit of people's engagement. And as a direct result of that, there were a lot of pregnancies in Israel. Jezebel not only wanted to bring in Baal worship, anybody that would stand against Jezebel in worship of the true God of the Old Testament, she tried to quiet them, and she had two primary methods of doing that. He would have them killed. That happened. In your Bible, this is the story of Elijah coming directly against Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah is full of power and authority, and he has incredible stuff. And still, the very next chapter, if you turn the page, he's afraid of this woman. I mean, she is powerful. So she'd have these prophets of God and these priests in the temple killed. But her other favorite way of doing it, of kind of bringing fear to people who would question her, is she would cut out their authority, metaphorically, by castrating the men. So if you spoke out against Jezebel, she'd castrate you. Uh, she did that to a lot of priests, and then she'd leave them to run around with no potency. You can connect the metaphor, right? That's what she liked to do. And so even though Ahab was king, it was well known in all of Israel that Jezebel was really in charge. And the authority of the king given to him by God was overshadowed by Jezebel's power and authority, and people were in abject fear of her. And so as you read these stories in your Bible, First uh, and Second Kings and Chronicles, that's where these stories are told, you get the sense that for about a generation, generation and a half, um, it's a dark day. Israelites are sacrificing these unwanted children to Baal. Here's why. Baal is the god of fertility, and if you get pregnant in worship of Baal, he wants your child back. So child sacrifice was huge in Israel at the time. In fact, an Israelite could go to the temple of God on Sabbath, and then the very next day go celebrate in debauchery. They could do both. And the law of God was ripped down. And uh, when these women would get pregnant, 
the teaching was, the understanding was, is you would just give that child over to, God, over to Baal or one of the under deities under Baal, maybe Moloch or another, and they would sacrifice them by fire. They would literally light these babies on fire, or they would cast them over a cliff and dash them on the rocks below as a sacrifice. And this was all to kind of cover up the unwanted pregnancies as a direct result of the worship activities that were rampant. Israel had temple prostitutes, even that on occasion would show up at the real temple. And so the blending, the compromise between their standards and the clear teachings of Moses in the Old Testament, they were completely gone. One day a prophet rises up and says to Jezebel, there's coming a day, and what's going to happen is, is uh, the dogs are going to eat your flesh. But it was a long time from the prophecy to its fulfillment. Sure enough, there did come a day when God let a marauding tribe from outside of Israel come in and wreak havoc on Israel. He did. It was the judgment of God on Israel for their disobedience. And it brought in a dark day, but as a direct result of that, Jezebel was thrown out a window. The king's and uh, uh, chariot and horses trampled her, and she was discovered as the dogs were literally eating her body. And so was the end of Jezebel and ushers in a time of revival into the people of Israel. It was a dark, dark, dark day. So in the writing here, when the image of Jezebel is brought into the story of somewhere around AD 90 in Thyatira, every one of those readers had in mind who this woman was, how she was uh, directly opposed to the teaching of the church, which was the Lord Jesus calls his people to have sexual purity, not to participate in these guild parties where debauchery and sexual immorality occurred. But evidently this woman, who's given the name like a Benedict Arnold, Jezebel, her teaching went like this, evidently. You can kind of do both. You can kind of be with Jesus and you can kind of do this. After all, you have to work for a living anyway. After all, this is just the way the world is. After all, everybody does it. And if you don't, you're going to suffer material harm. So, evidently, this lady says, I've received deep knowledge from God, not known to the other leaders of the church. And she has influence, she has visibility. And so she shares her deep knowledge and as she does, people start going, wow, that's easier. I can both stay gainfully employed, have some, maybe it was fun uh, at the time, and I can still be a thoroughgoing, valid member of the church. The problem was is that's not what Jesus thinks about it. So he writes them a letter, and in black and white language says to them in unmistakable ways, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet by her teaching. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols, which was an act of worship. You cannot do that. But to not do that would put you against the practice of the guild. So they had a quandary. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So evidently she was confronted but would not repent. She's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. This is imagery. She's been on a bed of pleasure, but I'm going to put her in a hospital bed. That's what, no, 
By the way, this is not a pastor talking. This is not some spirit. This is Jesus himself dictating this letter to John. I'll strike her children dead. Now, probably not her biological children, but the people who rise up under her authority, who walk in the shadows she casts, who believes the lies she's telling, they're going to suffer harm too. And then he says, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So you're reading this in your chair on the morning, and you hit the speed bump. Because like, where's, wait, am I in the, I thought I was in the New Testament. Where's that Jesus? The meek, mild, loves everybody Jesus. Because this sounds like the God of the Old Testament. And you wouldn't be wrong to feel that way. It does. The problem is not that you'd be wrong. The problem is, is that for a lot of us, our picture of Jesus is incomplete. Like, we like the Jesus that makes the cover of Time magazine. The Jesus that if you ask everybody in the world, like, who would you like to meet, they all say Jesus. Like, we have that Jesus in mind. But we've skipped over Jesus' own words in Revelation and even in the Gospels, honestly. Like, if you read the Gospels, that Jesus is much more different than the average person thinks Jesus is. It's not that we're wrong that Jesus has this meek, mild, incredibly, you know, accepting side. He does. But he also has this very firm, sovereign side where he says, I know what you're doing, and you're doing wrong. Like, let's not mince words. You are fundamentally off the page. And that's what he's doing here. And he's doing it and trampling on one of the primary values of ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, unlike America of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, it began to change in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even now it's changing. In fact, we're heading more to be what the New Testament was like. The culture of the New Testament is more like America today than the culture in America 40 years ago was. 40 years ago in America, in America, even if you didn't go to church, even if you didn't believe in God, you pretty much accepted the values of Christianity as valid, and everybody should attain to them, and if you didn't, you should kind of keep it quiet. Right or wrong, that's the way it was. But not in ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, you celebrated your unique deity and the behavior he called you or she called you to. And the expectation was is that you were allowed to participate in your religious engagement so long as you didn't help uh, so, so long as you didn't prevent anybody else from participating in their religious engagement. They were all seen as equally valid. There was no right or wrong objectively. The only people who were considered wrong were those who stood up and said, that behavior is wrong. Well, then by saying that, you're wrong. That's ancient Rome. Sound familiar? So Jesus writes a letter to the church at Thyatira and says, you tolerate. Now, here's the problem with that word. It's a wonderful word. And as disciples, how we define that word really matters. There's a sense in which you can use the word tolerate, and it is God-honoring and Jesus-honoring and faithful discipleship. And there's a sense in which you could use that word tolerate, and it is dishonoring and disloyal and unfaithful to the call of God on your life. This passage gives us a chance to think through that. It gives us a chance to evaluate not only the culture of ancient Rome, but our own culture as well. So he says, I'm going to deal with her, and I'm actually going to repay every one of you according to your deeds. Which is, 
not a part of the Bible people like to preach. And can I tell you why? Most pastors I know are not timid. Most pastors I know are not afraid in the general sense of the word. But what happens is, as you come to a text like this, and it's something that in our church we planned six months ago to do, and you're terrified that when you get it, people are going to hear only one side of what you're trying to say. You are intolerant. You are not grace-filled. And you know in your heart, like, that's not who you are, and it's not who you want to be. And you know that sometimes when people get upset, they act in very foolish ways. So the fear is, is that here's this, these people in our church we're working with. They're not, they're still drinking the milk of the word. They're on the edge of faith. They're not yet in faith. And we're going to preach like this. And here's what they're going to hear. We're going to bump up against their own values and they're done. We've been trying to get them to the table of God's word and to the table of fellowship with him. But as we serve up this little bit of an appetizer, their stomachs turn and we're done. That's what most pastors are afraid of. That's why they don't talk about stuff like this. Most pastors practically know that if people get emotional and get upset, there's going to be a price to pay. And so they avoid. And in all candor, total transparency with you here, like three times this week, I thought, how do I dial this back? That's horrible for a pastor. The only reason I did it is because I'm a little afraid of you. Straight up. Some of you are mean, so I just want to help you. If you want to write me the email... It's Pastor Will at fourcornerschurch.com. Right here, that coming right. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you here other than, while I am, in all honesty, a little afraid of you, like the fear of man is one of the primary reasons leaders don't lead, the truth is, is I'm actually much more afraid of God. And I know this, the most important job I have in the life of this church is what happens right here. It's not the only job. It is the most important. And so while I'm afraid of you, let me, let me tell you what the Bible reminds me of. That the worst you'll do to me is harm my body. You know, you'll get ticked, you'll leave. In my church, the way we made sure we got the change we wanted, there'd be a meeting after church of all the people who gave a lot of money, and we'd all agreed to hold our tithe until the pastor got to where he couldn't get paid. And then we'd get a new pastor about every three years, and then all those people who were holding their tithe, they'd give their tithe to the church and get us past the hurdle. They never gave it all, by the way, but they'd give a big bulk of money. Now, doesn't that sound godly? That's what we did. I'm not saying, but that kind of stuff gets in a pastor's head. And as much as I like, am a little afraid of you, the Bible tells me the worst you can do is harm my material life, but there is a God who can literally destroy my soul. And so I don't... I don't have a choice, and when I think about it deeply, I don't want a choice other than to talk exactly tangibly about what this passage has to say. So now in Thyatira, here's the rest of the language. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, so not those who are following Jezebel, whoever that woman was, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, so-called, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until you come. So there's two groups of people here, those that need to repent of following Jezebel and those who need to be faithful and hold on. Then, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over nations. 
that one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, the iron scepter. The king would bang it on the ground, boom, boom, boom. He'd make his declarations, and things would fall just by the authority represented in that scepter and his role. And then he says, just as I've received authority from my father, and I'll also give you Give that one the morning star. So he's saying, not only do you, are if you fulfill, not only are you going to get the authority of the king, you're going to get the king himself. I'll give that one the morning star. That's Jesus. You're going to get the authority of the king. You're going to get the power of the king. But you're going to get the king himself, which is the greatest gift any disciple can have. It isn't the power and authority in favor of God. It is God himself that's the greatest gift a disciple can have. And then he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's work through your message notes, all right? So here's a couple statements. Today's complacency, it's not in your message notes. Write these first two down. Today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. Today's complacency is tomorrow's captivity. So um, people have been asking me if I'm sick. Is that how I lost weight? No, I'm just trying to get healthy because somebody told me, somebody, he said, you know, when I see a fat pastor, I think weak mind. And I was like, oh, heck no. So that's part of it. So... I didn't know people thought that or I'd have lost weight a long time ago. So anyway, here we go. So in dieting, let's hold off spirituality for a minute. In dieting, if I'm complacent and I do whatever I want to do, which is what I've done, and I, um, I eat whatever I want, I'm complacent today. I don't have standards. I don't have discipline. I don't hold myself to a regiment. Today's complacency is going to create for me tomorrow's complications. If you're middle schooler, hasn't learned in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade the discipline of study and homework and engagement. That's about the age which if it's not learned, it's really hard to learn it. Today's complacency is going to create low test scores in 11th grade on the ACT, and they may not get into the school that you've been hoping they get into the whole time. It won't be because in 11th grade necessarily they didn't do it. It was today's complacency creates tomorrow's complications and challenges. And that's the problem with the topic that we're having today. When the church is complacent today, they're just guaranteeing problems tomorrow. And so the next statement is just Ben's opinion. And I try to make it very clear when it's Ben's opinion and when I think it's actually truth that is from God's word or in alignment with God's word. I think it is, but I want to give you some room here to disagree with me. I believe it's a sin for Christians to be more tolerant than Christ is tolerant. I think it's a sin for Christians to be more tolerant than Jesus is tolerant. I think we're called to be tolerant in the ways Jesus is tolerant and to not be tolerant in the ways Jesus wasn't tolerant. And today, we're not just prancing and dancing with high heels on Rome's values. We're dancing on 21st century American and unfortunately often church values. That tolerance means we never have conversations like this I want to take you right to Jesus' words. You can write this down. Just write down Matthew 19. You'll find it. Here's what Jesus had to say about the sin of Jezebel, the sin of sexual immorality. Haven't you read, Jesus said, in Matthew 19, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So a man will leave and be united to his female wife. That's Jesus' sexual ethic. And all sexual behavior out of one man, one woman in a covenant of marriage is a sin before God. If you're not a Christian, here's, do whatever you want. Seriously, I have no opinion for you. If you're not a Christian, why would you hold yourself to Christian values? Now, I think there's a certain wisdom in it, but 
Why would you? Eat, drink, and be merry because you're going to die. But if you're a Christian, Jesus' own words in Matthew 19, a man will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's imagery of sexual engagement. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Again, sexual engagement. Therefore, where God is joined together, let no one separate. It's said at almost every wedding in churches, sometimes that won't even preach the full implication of the passage. And we can't do that. We can't do that. This passage that we're preaching demands that we look at the sexual ethic of Thyatira and the sexual ethic at work in America but more importantly, in American churches, in, but more specifically, in our church. So now let's fill in some blanks. There's often a delay. Let me tell you what complicates this. There's often a delay between sinful actions and consequences. Again, today's accommodations creates tomorrow's accusations. Today's disengagement creates more work Tomorrow, And with so much sin, like exercise, like dieting, I can go home today and eat a chocolate cake, and I'll probably be fine. A pound or two, I don't know. And I go into a sugar coma. I, it kind of sounds good. You want to just stop now? Let's all get some chocolate cake. But I can't indiscriminately do that over time because I'm going to have problems over here. But the delay factor lulls me into believing I'm going to be okay. And the delay in sexual sin, in fact, it's even worse. There's no delay on the pleasure. It's like a friend of mine used to say. If sin isn't pleasurable, you're doing it wrong. It is. The Bible actually says the pleasures of the sin is pleasurable for a season. But the consequences come very much later. So there's often a delay. There's two groups of people. There is, in the next blank, there is the repent group that's being talked to here. And then there, there is the keep going group. So in this passage, we're invited to ask a question. Am I, as a follower of Jesus, am I in the repent group today or am I in the keep going group? And so let me just make it clear. If there's sexual expression in your life outside the bounds of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage, you're in the repent group. You can be mad at me. Seriously. It's okay. I'm, I'm used to it. I was talking to my son the other day about the challenges of just general leadership and people get upset with you. He said, here's what he said to me. He said, Dad, if you wanted everybody to be happy with you, why didn't you sell ice cream for a living? So he had that mercy gift too, just like I do. It's just, you know. Like, Dead on right. You can be mad at me. The question is not are you mad at Ben. Am I accurately portraying what Jesus is speaking to the church? Do you have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to you? Take Ben out of the equation. Let me give you the next one. The will of God is never going to take you outside the word of God. Never. So I'm sitting in my office more than once over the last 13 and a half years, 13 and three-quarter years. We'll be 14 years old in September. You can do the math. And before then, I taught high school for six years, and some version of this conversation would happen between me and a guy. I don't have conversations like this with women. I never will. If you need a pastor and you're a woman who has conversations like this with you, you're in the wrong church, all right? I will not. If we begin a conversation like I've had with a few men, I'll stop it. I'll send you to a counselor. 
I'll pay for it. It's okay to have them. You can't have them with me. I don't have conversations about sexuality with women, period. All right? So, Ben, I'm just sexually frustrated, some guy will say to me. I'm single. I'm married. Like, my wife and I are not compatible or, and listen, you're smart people. I don't have to draw this out very far. Like, she's not sexually available to me after the kids, we whatever, and these are behaviors, and she doesn't, and the, okay, there it is. There it is. Now, here's the thing. That's not a bad conversation to have. But sometimes behind that conversation is a basic lie that says this, that I have sexual urges that need to be met. They deserve to be met. And if I don't get them met, I'm cheating myself from something that I am owed. I, I get that. That is certainly what our culture says to you. It is. You haven't misunderstood what the culture has been trying to teach you. And there's appropriateness in a Christian marriage for people to say, is there sexual fulfillment? But it's never this standard. All your sexual urges are fulfilled and especially fulfilled in the timeline you want them fulfilled. So there's two major, not all of them, and not in your time necessarily. If by sexually fulfilled in your marriage, you mean, I want to have you know, robust intimacy, um, I, I want to deeply connect, knowing that there are seasons of engagement and disengagement, there are ups and downs in relationship, there's moments where it's natural and moments where we have to work on it. If by that, yes, that's exactly what God wants for you. But let me make it clear, God does not want to make you sexually fulfilled. That is not his plan for you, unless you define sexual fulfillment in a healthy way. So I'm not sexually fulfilled. My, my marriage isn't fulfilling me, and God's will for me is to be fulfilled. That's a lie. So here's what people have said to me. So I'm now, I have a new wife. Okay, here's the thing. God's word, or the will of God for your life, is never going to take you outside the word of God that's supposed to guide and dictate how you do what God's calling you to do, period. You are not free to find sexual expression because you're frustrated at home. You're not free to click eight more times on the internet because you believe your wife is sexually unavailable to you, even if she is. You're not, not as a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, have at it, man. Enjoy it, because you're gonna die. And the only thing you got to look forward to is the pleasure of this life if you're not a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you have eternity. And eternity is more important than what's going on in your life right now. So Christianity starts with tolerance. We'll take anybody. But then it does something. It says, now change. Our church, we'll take anybody. Wherever you are on the sexual spectrum, you're welcomed here. We'll love you the best we know how. And we're going to do for you what we do for every single person that walks in the door. The moment you walk in, we're going to start saying, we love you, now change. Yep, I know. I know if we're truly tolerant, we wouldn't do that. But that's the thing. We're not truly tolerant in all the ways that the word tolerant is used in the culture today. We're not. We have no intention to be. We never will be. And we don't want to be. Jesus didn't call you to just accept you. He called you to mold and shape you. He called, that's what he's doing to me. Jesus didn't say to me, Ben, you're pretty awesome. I love you just the way you are. Go ahead and come into my family, and we're going to leave you just like that. Nope. That's not what he did. He said, Ben, you're pretty awesome. I love you. I'd give my life just for you. Come join my family and watch me change you. That's what he does. Now, here, here, here's the question you have to ask yourself. 
Did Ben make this up, or is that an accurate reflection of the plan of discipleship in the Bible? If it's an accurate reflection of the plan of discipleship in the Bible, and you want to beat your head against that, that's fine. But that wall ain't moving. And if it's just Ben, ignore me and go find yourself a church that doesn't talk like this. I'm going to give you a few. Right now, there are struggles in entire denominations over the very issues we're talking about. About half of the PCUSA churches in America today, you can go to, and they're never going to challenge you on the sexual ethic. It's a debate they're having, and about half will. The expectation is, is this summer in the United Methodist Church, there's going to be a 60-40 split over this very issue that we're having a discussion about right now. You can go to the Universalist Unitarian Church, and you'll never hear stuff like this. But you can't go to a Bible-preaching church and not hear this. You can't. You can't. It's not true. Because what's at stake here is not what I'm telling you. It's the authority of God's word. Often, theological slipperiness is really a mask for moral disobedience. Well, I just don't believe that the culture of the time matches the culture now. And so what they meant by these words then, no, no, no. The Apostle Paul made it clear that in homosexual relationships, both the giver and the receiver, the pitcher and the catcher, both are wrong. It, that's what it says, friends. I'm sorry. It's crystal clear in the Greek. Crystal clear. In Corinthians, New Testament. Don't even have to go to Leviticus. New Testament. It's crystal clear. Homosexual behavior is outside the bounds for disciples of Jesus. As is heterosexual sexual engagement. As is any behavior that is fueled by lust unrestrained, which most of pornography... I say most, I'm just going to a little bit of, all, what, okay, most, all goes into that category there. I'm not, I don't really want to tell you this. I don't. But playing with the authority of scripture so that your moral behavior can fit is exactly what disciples are not allowed to do. Because the church belongs to Jesus and he has the right to say, whether or not you and I are being obedient. Remember, he sees with blazing eyes. He has a clear picture. We have this assumption that if we call people to repentance, somehow that's a negative thing. But that's, I think, one of the biggest lies in all this. Repentance, calling people to repent, is the, often the clearest expression of the grace and love of God. Do you know what gave me life in Christ? It was the work of Jesus. I didn't do anything. But when I came to him in humble submission, here's the other word for that. When I repented and acknowledged I was a sinner in need of a savior, my eyes were opened at that moment to what he had for me. It was all his doing and all his will and all his work. I just acknowledged that's what repentance is, is you're going and you acknowledge and you turn, you change your thinking, you go in a new direction. That's not a bad thing. But we don't like to call people to repentance. So here's the next point. If we never call people to repentance, we are no longer faithful Christians. And we're actually withholding, in many cases, the very grace and love of God that we think is motivating us to not call sin, sin. And I get it. Here's why. Let me, let me tell you why we don't do this. Here's the next point. When it comes to people we love, our mental convictions become emotional confliction. So here's how it happened to me. I hope he's not watching. A few years ago, I was with my uncle, we were visiting, and he's 
He's involved in a homosexual lifestyle. I don't, by the way, I don't like the word gay. I don't even know what that word means. Um, the Bible doesn't talk about that word. It talks about homosexual behavior, all right? So I don't, I don't even know about that. Um, I have opinions, but it's outside the realm of what the Bible specifically speaks to. But when it comes to homo or heterosexual behavior outside of one man, one man, woman in a covenant marriage, it's a sin. So here we are talking. He knows I'm an evangelical pastor. That is, I believe in the authority of Scripture. And he knows the way he says is we're a happy, clappy church. We sing those happy, clappy songs. And we do. I, I love them. So here we are talking. We're about an hour in. And he says, you know, you're not near as big a jerk as I thought you were going to be. And we don't know, know each other. We don't see each other, but maybe every seven, eight years. So he hasn't seen me much as an adult. And uh, I said, well, I, I don't really know what to make of that statement. And he said, well, you know, you evangelicals, you I tried to go to churches like that, and they're, and then he says, so what do you think of homosexuality? And honestly, like, I pitted up. I started sweating, like, literally. Like, I'm, I got wet pits. Like, literally, I'm like, you know, I need an armor bearer to bring me a napkin or something. If you don't get that reference, that's awesome. You're healthier than I am. So, um, I was like, God, I just, I don't. so I called his name. I said, here's the deal. I'm afraid to answer you because here we've had this great conversation and I think you know I love you. I think you know I value you. I'm afraid if I tell you how I feel, you're going to think, no, no, that's true. And so I think I know your answer. I said, well, let me just say it. I said, here's what I think. All sexual behavior outside the covenant of marriage that Jesus instituted is a sin. Not what God wants for anybody. And I think specifically that message is given to Christians and for people who claim the name of Jesus and the Lordship of Christ. And if the people who are claiming Lordship of Christ operate outside of those bounds, they're walking in sin. But I love you. I really enjoy our relationship. It's kind of quiet. I don't think if I had the relation, if I didn't have a bit of a relation, I don't know that I could have done it as easy. I, I, I don't know. But I knew in that moment I had a fundamental decision to make. Would I tell him the truth or not? And I, I thought about it. Because I, I could play this out a hundred ways. And it's hard. I did. And, you know, we're polite to each other to this day and have a similar level of engagement. And he's still doing his thing. And I pray for him a lot. But I knew that emotional confliction. Here's our next blank. We can't impose our beliefs on others. It's not our job. But as Christians, especially to other Christians, we must propose our beliefs in Jesus and the answers he provides in the word. I have to. I don't get a choice. We can't give in to the spirit of Jezebel in our world that says you can both do that and this. can't. It will not be a bed of pleasure. It will be a hospital bed. And everybody who is touched by that, them and their kids, it's, it's going to have pain. So here's the bottom line, guys. What do you believe about your heart, the heart of your heavenly father towards you on sexual ethic? Is it good or is he trying to cheat you? Is he wise? Does he know what's best? 
or are you wiser than him? I'm not, if you're not a Christian, seriously, ignore me. If you're following Jesus, listen. Is he good and is he wise? Or are you wiser and is he trying to withhold from you? Once you establish those issues, then the sexual ethic of Jesus, even if it's hard, is acceptable to you. And if it's not acceptable to you, it's probably because you think he's trying to cheat you or you think you know better than him. And that's your call, but you're outside the bounds spiritually. You're being a bad disciple. And it's time to get off the milk and accept this meat. Now, I don't want you to leave. Let me tell you how it works out in our church. We don't accept members into our church who are living together, and we never will. You can be members of the Lord's church and be a disobedient disciple, but if we're aware of sexual sin, you're not allowed to be a member here. To be a member here is to carry a certain amount of responsibility. And that kind of irresponsibility doesn't match the responsibility of being a member. If you're on this staff at any level and you're caught in sexual sin of any variety, I'm going to cry, I'm going to pray, we're going to be friends, and I'm going to fire you without losing a wink of sleep. We just don't do that here. We don't do it. And I know other churches do bless them. But I'm not going to stand and give an account for what that church down the road did. And I'm not afraid of the public opinion on that matter. I'm afraid that one day I and the other leaders of this church are going to stand before God and he's going to say, how did you shepherd and lead and proclaim truth in love to this congregation? And we'll take anybody, but make it perfectly clear. If you're our guest today, we take you as you are, and every week I'm going to try to get you to change. Every single week I'm going to try to, you to get you to open your heart to Jesus and become more like him. You know why? Last blank. Here's why. Very simple. When Jesus was talking about what would set people free, let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, if you're really, really kind to people, it's going to set them free. Now, he did say the kindness of God leads to repentance, so kindness is good. He didn't say, if you give a cup of cold water in my name, that's going to set people free. Although he did talk about giving a cup of cold water in his name, that's good. And he didn't say, if people always feel awesome around you, it's going to set them free. That's not what he said. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, that's the blank, and the truth will set you free. And so disciples are peddlers of truth. And where there are lies, we do our best to confront them. Timing and tone, of course, matters. But we confront lies. We do. Lies do not set people free. Lies bring bondage. We are peddlers of truth. We'll do our best to do it. Let me just make it clear. We won't always do it well. Every pastor, every church leader, every person in your life, maybe even you, we all want people to like us, but let me tell you what's better than having people like you. It's having the approval of your heavenly father look at you one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. For those of you that are pressing through in a world that's hard and you are making wise decisions for the most part and you are paying the price socially to make them, hold on. That's what this passage says to you. Hold on. Keep going. Do not give up. It is worth it. You're not robbing yourself of pleasure today. You're not. What you're doing is you're laying up treasures in heaven, and your heavenly Father makes it clear that he will reward you openly for the decisions you have made in secret to be faithful to him. So why don't you grab out your connect cards right now, and we'll take some steps together. 
I hope you can hear my heart. I'm glad to engage you. Sincerely, Ben at fourcornerschurch.com. I don't want to hurt you. I love you. But to love you and not tell you the truth is not to love you. I can't do that. Next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. So you have a pretty good picture that if you come to Jesus, he's going to change you. But let me make it clear, it's worth it. So I'd ask you, if you feel compelled right now by the Holy Spirit, if you feel compelled, you may not know it's Holy Spirit, but it is. Check next step A in a minute. We're going to pray, and I'm going to give you a chance to do some business with God. And say to him, Lord, I can't save myself. I trust the work you did on your cross and in your resurrection to save me. Our next step B says, today I'm choosing to be baptized. We're going to have a big baptism on the 5th. And everybody that goes under the water, they have a story. When they come up, that water runs off of them. And it's the washing of their life. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Some of you were liars and thieves and drunkards and sexually immoral. And he lists a bunch of other stuff, blah, 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 blah. But that's who you were. Now you have been washed. See, you're sitting in a room full of people who've blown the sexual ethic of Jesus. The vast majority of us. But we've been washed by the blood of Jesus. We've been made clean. And now we're doing our best to live as disciples worthy. Worthy of the calling that he's called us to. And that's what baptism represents. Next step C says, who'll do this? Pray this prayer with me every morning. I'll send it to you if you check it. God, help me today to love your word and not the world. Embolden me to have compassion but not compromise. That's the tension. Next step D says, I'll pray for Four Corners Church, our leaders and our members, that we would live with boldness and humility in a world full of compromise. This is hard. This is a hard thing to do, but this is where we are. And the next step E says, hey, I'll pray for 4C Kids Ministry. For those that members, we'll talk about some exciting th- things. I have a very encouraging news to share with you on Wednesday night. I think you're going to love it. And um, our kids' ministry, the values that have driven that since our inception will continue even if some of the ways we mechanically do it look a little different. I think you're going to be encouraged. Why don't you put that aside? If you call Four Corners home, this is your opportunity to give back financially to bless the ministries here, to make them happen very tangibly. It takes money to do ministry without it. We're, you know, we can still be kind and nice, but me- mechanically as a church, we cease to function. And if you uh, have kids or don't have kids, I want to invite you before you leave the building today to kind of walk through a lot of the work that we've done over the last few weeks. You can't tell a lot of work's being done. It's behind the scenes stuff. But in the last week, a lot of very visible stuff got done. And it's just really exciting to see what your dollars and pennies are doing over here. And so I want to invite you to walk through and take a look at it. And on the 29th, we're not going to be quite done. We'll be close to done. Um, But we're going to go ahead and dedicate that space to the glory of God and to the benefit of our kids. It's going to be a great time. Let's pray about our next steps and our offering. And just before you bow your head, I'm going to spend just a few moments at the end of praying for our offering and our next steps and invite you to do one of two things. Pray for yourself or pray for somebody you love that God would grant repentance and forgiveness. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open my hands like this and pray a prayer of repentance. And uh, there's stuff in my own life. There's stuff in other people's lives. And I want to be fully open to whatever God wants to do. Things I know, things I don't know. This is a safe place to do serious business with God. And repentance is God's gift to you. Don't waste these next few minutes. Let's pray.
Father, I want to thank you that you have eyes that see and your feet are powerful. You can go wherever you want to go and get your will done. And we ask that you would come here now and accomplish your will. Father, we want to be disciples who are honoring what you've called us to do. We don't want to believe the lies of this world. We don't want to be in bed with Jezebel. We want to hear the true prophet of God speak to us. That is the prophet of your Holy Spirit, compelling us, convicting us of our sins. Father, I pray for the men and women in this room right now who are declaring Jesus. Wash away my sins. Cover me by your shed blood. I cannot save myself. I trust the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. I trust in that alone to save me. God, I pray for our offering and our next steps that you would cause both of them to go far and wide for your glory. Maximize the impact of the dollars. Make our next steps sure and quick and clear. But God, right now I ask you to send your Holy Spirit in its conviction, in his role as a, of, of a convincer. And there'd be people in this room that would feel your affirmation right now that they've made sacrifice to be faithful to what you called them to do. And they haven't often felt the pleasure of this world as they did it, but I pray right now they'd feel your smile. They'd have the warmth of the Holy Spirit fill their soul. And I pray, Lord, where we have disobedient disciples in this room or watching by video, the conviction of your Holy Spirit would fall, not to bring condemnation, but to bring repentance. And without arrogance, without resistance, in humility, before an awesome God, we declare, Father, we have sinned. Forgive us. We have not kept your word. We've excused our behavior. Wash away our sins. And I pray, Father, that the work of your Holy Spirit in convincing us that we are your sons and daughters would be powerful in this room. And in a minute, as we lift up our voices to sing to our awesome God, you would fill our hearts with forgiveness, with grace, with boldness, with truth. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy Son. Amen and amen.